Welcome to the Investing for Life podcast, where we apply proven investment principles to the lives of successful business people to help you enrich your own. With your host, Douglas Isles. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Platinum Asset Management's founder, Kerr Nielsen, for a special opportunity to unpick the man behind the philosophy, not only of Platinum, but also of the Investing for Life podcast series. So Kerr, thank you for joining us today. Thank you. I want to start by exploring uh, drive. I think you have done uh, what I call investment management, a very material pursuit. And, and many people who've done well in the industry kind of get to a point and say, I'm done, I've had enough. But you kept going, a, a career listing almost uh, 50 years. So can I just get to the heart of, of what drives you and, and what drove you to continue and persist? That's a uh, challenging question, and it'll be given a an equally honest answer. I think insecurity, um, which I don't regard as an admission of a great weakness. I just think it's an acknowledgement that many of us have different motivations. So the, that was one of the principal drivers. And the second is probably just getting better at things. And as as you do this game of investing, if you are open to criticism and open to new ideas, you you progressively get better. So it's those two things working together. The money was never the great driver. Um, a few extra bob never goes astray, um, but it wasn't the motivation when we started the business and it, and it remained uh, a sort of absent motivator. So, so that learning and that's a sort of continuous development over many years. Can you think of some of the things you were still learning in, in the later stages? What was? Well, the trouble is you have all these terrible habits. So we were always trying to find neglected ideas. And so if something had run up 30%, I'd say, well, you know, it's hardly, you can hardly claim it's neglected now. But sometimes it's such a good idea and, and you should just be, be prepared to move your price targets. Um, it's that sort of thing. And often you're in the, in the game and you're saying, um, you observe patterns of behavior. So when I was shorting, in the early days, I shorted very effectively. And then later, it took on a tag of trying to protect rather than trying to make money. So I, then I got into bad habits. And then you've got to try and uh, remediate that. So you're always learning. I mean, one of the companies I remember uh, being sort of a, a, a typical platinum investment was Toyota. Yes. And they talked about continuous improvement. So did you see parallels with what you were doing and, and what the likes of a Toyota was doing? Well, that's the interesting thing. As you go and see companies, all the time you're comparing what we were doing and were we thinking about the future enough? Were we doing our form of R&D enough, research and development? Were we really modifying our behavior? So there was always something to learn from the behavior of others um, when you understood they were running very complex businesses and we were running a relatively simple one. And you thought, well, why do we make this so hard? Why can't we just get more benefit out of all this teamwork that we're trying to engender? So yes, absolutely, all the time. So, so across that, do you, th do you think there's sort of universal elements of success, both for, for corporates and, and for individual investors? Yes. It has to be focus. What are you trying to achieve? And then it's all the mechanisms around that. But, but you need a very clear point of reference, which is where we're trying to get ourselves. And in our case, it was trying to make money for our clients 
And then there was this concept that if they made money, we could not fail to make money for ourselves. So, so that was the focus. It wasn't because there's some of these businesses that started up with a total intent of making money for themselves. And th the failure of that philosophy is that you, you lose the plot because you're actually just the agent. You're not the provider of the capital and you're only the manipulator of the capital. Yeah. So Hopefully it's a positive manipulator. But it is all about purpose and, and, yes. and having that focus. So in building building a team over time, you have to hire people to come to come on the journey with you and to, and to build the capability. My, my sort of impression working in the organization was when you hire people, you tended to look for very specific attributes and you tended to put a focus on or an emphasis on the person's upbringing or perhaps what they'd done in their first job. And that seemed to be something that you thought would maybe stick with them for the rest of their lives. So maybe you can just sort of unpick both the kind of people you're looking for and, and why perhaps I, maybe I, I took that away as, a, as an impression and, and whether, whether that was important to you. The markets are full of surprises and most jobs are full of surprises. So I tend to like people who are creative and imaginative. Um, you don't want them being too silly, um, but if they can be creative, they'll generally work their way out of a sticky situation and we all get there at some stage. So that was, <laughs> that was the starting point. From their backgrounds, um, having people with grit is important because it's so easy to blame others. It's so easy to find reasons why you haven't succeeded yourself. And if someone has been subjected to ad adversity from an earlier age, they tend to have learned something from that. I mean, it's a useless screen, but it's because anything can influence the DNA is, gets you started. And then from there on, there's a whole lot of nurture around it. So you're keeping all that in mind. So there's not one solution to selecting people. And I don't think I was particularly good at it. You know, I mean, I was lucky. I had people like you. That was a great hire. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. Okay. So, so maybe that would be an interesting place to go from there to your own upbringing and, mm. and how that perhaps shaped you. Um, what really sort of stands out is in your memory from from sort of childhood and early days? Well, I was terrifically lucky. Firstly, I had this long heritage of, of industrialists and then my father's business went bust. Well, there's nothing more alerting to one's consciousness than, a bit, you know, having been very comfortable and then we really were quite strapped and he was a man of great honour, so he felt he should pay his outstanding debts, which is not so... You know, not common these days, but he chose to do that. So we went through a pretty tough time. I'm not suggesting it was, you know, we weren't starving. Um, but what that did was remind one, you don't have any entitlement to anything. And that view about entitlement uh, seems so pertinent today where we seem to have had, you know, in this country, 30 years of uninterrupted growth. So anyone who's lived here, you know, who's below the age of 40 has a very different view to anyone who might be a little older because they've seen recessions, they've seen adversity through whatever. So maybe describe yourself as a teenager, the personality or... I know, I was totally unconscious <laughs> of anyone else around me. I, I was the center of my own universe. Yeah. So I was perfectly comfortable in my own skin and didn't understand why people were not <laughs> comfortable in theirs. And I think that's just one's own personality type. I mean, some of us uh, seek um, uh, approbation or adulation. I, I wasn't really 
so interested in that. Um, with bad eyesight, I was never much good at ball sports. And, and I regret that because it, it made me much more inclined to do my own thing. I mean, had I been any good with ball sports, um, I think I would have changed somewhat. Yes. Well, maybe come back to that sort of um, being less part of the team, if you like, because it's, it's an important part of the, of the philosophy as you come to it. But, but what sort of fascinated me, we've talked before that, you know, you started investing at quite a young age, I think yes. about 13. And from my maths, that would be early 60s, which was, was a bull market at the time. So your early experiences of investing presumably were that it was quite easy. It seems it seemed uh, that it was commonsensical. You know, it seemed that it was it was logical, and um, but I didn't have any I, I didn't have any advantage over the field. And what I gradually understood um, was that you had to develop some sort of advantage, and that that was completely absent. So it was entire entirely good luck. Yes, there was, there was no no quality at all. And why I think that's important is that a lot of people who are picking up investing in the last decade probably have having a similar experience to what you had in your early days and maybe blindsided by their own sense of skill. Maybe you have some sort of thoughts around that and what people should be very careful about, what errors they should avoid. And Well, I think they're facing a nightmare now. We are at a point of resolve in terms of changes in markets. And... Um, if they don't examine very carefully and apportion that which was luck and apportion that which was um, clever in some value-added way, they're going to um, take some big bets and, and many will fail. So that idea of an edge, um, where did that come from in, in your own case? Where do you, how do you think you developed well, this idea of an edge. Again, that was luck. Um, I was working in this broker. So I, I had a very good foundation by this um, very smart fellow in London. And then I went back to South Africa and I was broking to this one fellow um, whose name was Alan Gray uh, of, of Orbis. And um, he was doing very strange things, buying companies that looked ludicrous and so on. And yet he was making a lot of money. So I sort of backwardly engineered what he was doing. And what I could see was um, he was really arbitraging the gap between what seemed sensible and what was sensible by just removing emotion. So that was the great lesson I learned there. And then I gradually developed somewhat tangentially, but not too differently for this idea that what is obvious will be in the price. And what you have to do as an investor is find out what is still plausible but less obvious, and that was the that was a big turning point when I started to make persistently make better decisions. So, so, so anyone can be lucky, yes, but it's your ability to persistently um, have a tendency to more winners than losers. That's the great. That's when you know you're starting to to have learned something. Yeah, and it's not a hundred against zero. It's, no, it's still no, a game no. where you get quite a lot of you make quite a lot of mistakes. You want to have about six out of ten. Yeah. And, and, and perversely, and this will surprise you, you can have a score below uh, 50 and still do better than the average. And why is that? By managing the scale of your lo losers against your winners, Clever. I guess. That's right. Yeah. So, so if, you, if you weight your winners and you correctly weight your winners, you actually can have, a, you can have an outcome that's really very profitable, even though you've got a scorecard on paper of less than uh, one in two. 
So that focus on winning is that if we're going back to that sort of drive at the beginning, is it is it that you you nice. want to win? You want to win. Yeah. And and the beautiful thing here is, unlike um, in so many other pursuits, no one the losers don't particularly get hurt. Yes. They su- simply surrender some of the upside or. Uh, they sell too too late, and so you're buying off their panic selling. So, so it's you're not actually you're not influencing their decisions, yet you're profiting from their decisions. So it sat with me as a personality very nicely because I I didn't feel I was being exploitative. Yeah, you're not hurting other people. No, no. no. So that that trade you're just exploiting you're exploiting them to the extent that they are over emotional. Yes, but you're not hurting them in, no, in the process, no, which no. is a. Uh, Interesting. So that trade-off between winning and losing, because you taught, um, and, and having worked at Planner for years, about the idea of trying to protect people is is almost an anti-losing thing, whereas the other side of it, which sort of you see your eyes light up there, is is, is winning. So can you talk about that trade-off between winning I, and losing? Well, it's easy. We had some racehorses. Judy and I had some racehorses at once, and we, 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 we had five out of the, the six horses were all um, – City winners. And we thought this was very boring. We went to one uh, race and there was this, we had a nag and there was this magnificent um, colt. And it, you know, it should have won. Yeah. And our nag came in. And after that, we lost interest. We said, well, if, <laughs> even this one went, <laughs> if the, the, really, the creme de la creme yeah. can't win. And what you found in racing was it was either the jockey was off that day or the positioning was wrong or the ground conditions were wrong. So we didn't like that because we didn't like our idea of of coming first without actually having the superior product. Yes. And so we, we were quite offended by that. <laughs> so we gave our <laughs> came up. Okay. So this is the 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 energy comes from this this idea that you're taking on everyone else. Well, not in a sort of Herculean way, but you are certainly pitting yourself against the entire field. And the field today with the internet means you could be trading against someone who's in in Helsinki or or the Congo. I mean, it could be anywhere. And you have to, before you start, you want to outline clearly why you think you've got a better understanding of the bet, because it is a bet. Yes than the rest of the pack. Yeah. And it is these nuances that I was referring to. So this is a, a, a process where you, you know, we t- touched on this earlier, but the idea of avoiding the crowd and sort of stepping back from the crowd. And, and I've sort of observed an interesting par- paradox in that in order to succeed as an investor, you know, your belief system says, I must avoid the crowd. At the same time, in order to build a business, to some extent, you had to lean into the crowd because you had to hire people, you had to attract people to you, you had to attract customers, you had to, if you like, impress people that that you were worth um, trusting with their money. So I find that a really interesting paradox between being, in one sense, avoiding the crowd and in the other sense, sort of having to lean in at times. How have you reconciled well, that? Well, that is the greatest problem for, for a, a, a stock-picking uh, firm because it seems so um, illogical what they're doing. So, you know, some while ago I was talking about you, one needed to think about buying Shell and a few of these very cyclical stocks. And at the time, you know, the oil price was below 50, well below. And um, that just seems stupid. But what was what is lost in stock markets is 
There's the idea and then there's the price. And the problem most investors have is they don't segregate the two. And so they talk about, they usually, they loosely use the term uh, what something is worth. And they actually uh, associate worth with the current price. And they couldn't be too different. They are completely different. Sometimes they coincide, but most of the time they're separate and, and have different outcomes. So how do you create that, that, that level of detachment repeatedly? Because you're being bombarded on one level with price information and so on and staying focused. I think it is that presumption that from time to time, fashion takes over. And uh, once fashion's taken over, the price teams, uh, tends to be greater than the worth, the real worth. And so you will have periods when uh, price way exceeds worth and you've just got to move away. And there's a wonderful thing here because fashion is a reality of all our lives and it, it prevails in all walks of life. And whether it's uh, relating to health, whether it's relating to science, there are these fashions. And most of the time, they overextend. You know, whether it was the, um, you know, the mini skirt or the, the they didn't overextend or whatever, <laughs> they, yeah. they were getting so short they were, yeah. they had to end. Yeah. That's <laughs> so, the opposite of overextending. <laughs> so so that, that's your problem, and you've just got to be inherently um, conscious that we're all driven by fashion. If you've got, if you work that out, you'll realize that there's another side to the story wherever. The news uh, editors are choosing to place it, whether whatever the event of the time is, because you can end up sort of almost willing the market to come to you. That's that's dangerous. I suspect very dangerous. Yeah, yeah. You've, you've got to stand back and say, well, I've missed this. Now I'm going to um, turn tails on it, and that's difficult because if you've missed a trend, what you will tend to do, and it's very rare one doesn't. Is you'll be you'll be filled with regret, and so you then overstay your welcome on the negative side or the positive side, whichever way it went against you. You then overcompensate, and then you miss the turn again. Yeah. So agility is a key variable here, and and you develop it with time. But you still keep you. you most of us can't change inherent trends in our personalities, so we will modify our behaviour. We won't change it fully. So you're kind of stuck. In my experience. You're kind of stuck what what you have as an individual. Yes. It's more about what yes. you how you it's how you move it. it. And if you talk to George Soros, you talk to Stan Druckerman, the two of the great investors I know, um, their greatest strength is they have none of this what I call path dependency. So this idea that your actions that were earlier now determine what you do today, they would sever that link and say, yes, that was yesterday. Today I'm seeing the world this yeah, way. Yeah. And, and to the uninformed, that sounds, uh, you know, most of us have a consistency requirement that, you, but you told me this yesterday. They feel no need to sh show any consistency. They say, well, yes, but it's a-, it's I've a secret. reappraised it today. Yeah. And a lot of analysts fall into that trap of, I have an idea, therefore I must defend my and, idea. And, and where they have been wrong, they will tend to keep pushing that line because they don't want to acknowledge that's where this acknowledge the error, and this is where this persistence uh, really can hurt them. When we have one of these fashions, and and, and the the tendency is, as you say, is to step away from it, walk away, look elsewhere, and, and we've gone through this last 
well, we call it 12, 13 years where lots of technology ideas have been sort of front and foremost and perhaps overvalued. Is there a risk that by avoiding the fashion, you also avoid picking up the knowledge that you need when the fashion ends? How do you reconcile that? I think that's correct. So the, the trouble is that you've got to keep an eye on both. And uh, you've got to keep your eye on the fashion. And because of allocation of time, the real danger you run is that you, you spend too little on the fashionable. And so um, when it has a message to give, you're not receptive to it. And that, that can be costly. So the time is a big thing here. I mean, this is a job that you could spend 24 hours of every day doing seven days a week and still be scratching the surface. So how have you come to manage time through time, like if, if you like, over, over the years? Have you, have you got better at managing time? How have you thought about no, it? No, well, that's, that goes back to your starting point. So um, I've always had this view, and it's becoming very evident to me it's no longer true, that I always had expandable time. Yeah. So if I didn't finish something on a Friday night at 12 midnight, I'd say, well, I've got the whole weekend. Uh, fortunately, the kids would be around on, so I had to spend time on the weekend, but, but I'd still extend my weekend work by a Sunday evening or something. Yeah. So unfortunately, I've never been good at allocating time. So one of the, the, the reasons that, you know, over the years you talked about setting up Platinum, it was almost to protect yourself from other people encroaching on your time because you worked in a large organization. It's salespeople, management, et cetera. So, Maybe we can go back to the origins of of setting up your own business and, and, and a bit sort of more depth as to you know why you wanted to set up um, uh, other than protecting yourself from overload. Why, why no, it's just that <laughs> you're just protecting yourself. Yeah. You're just saying, well, you know, if I continue along this line, yeah. I'm going to die working for someone else and and not have the final decision. <clears throat> yeah. So, pardon me. So the the problem really was protection. Saying, well. Because we, I don't think Andrew or I had any idea that we were going to set up something that was, you know, particularly large or yeah. magnificent. All we wanted to do was manage money. Yes. And then that sort of uh, took a life of its own. And so if you had uh, come from another perspective and, you know, wanted to set it up as a, an enterprise, if you like, would you, would you have done it differently? No, <laughs> no, because... Because it grows around you, and so you might you might make claims that you would, but the realities are it's 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 DNA coded in, into your personality style. You know, if some people are very good delegators, yeah. um, but I suspect they're not as good. You know, they're probably very good at teaching you golf, but not yes. very go good golfers, and that's that's the difference. So, in as you look back, and you know, twenty. Uh, Platinum's 28 years old today. What do you reflect on both at the sort of the positive sides and the and the, the negative sides of, of what you've built? The negative sides are that you're so busy day to day that you don't stand back and say, well, should we manage this in a different way? You're, you're sort of running to keep, uh, you know, in the game. So I think that's the, 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 the biggest test one faces running any business. And, you know, I've heard subsequently how one should be, uh, you know, what's it, how do they say it? They should be managing of the business rather than in the business. And I think there's some element of that, but I don't think I could have done that, you see. So you, there's no point in yeah. pretending. Yeah. 
and, and the positives? Oh, I think we've had, um, we've made people money. We've taken a share of that. And then that's given us a lot more um, personal satisfaction in terms of some of these great things Judith has done. Yes. You know, I mean, what she's done in the arts and what she's doing now is is really fascinating and, and having a real impact. And I've been much smaller way have you know done some interesting things with with uh, some of our causes yeah so how do you think about about legacy how, what does it mean to you well nothing because because as I was saying to you you know if you we had this great sort of industrial history and I realized that within three generations it's all forgotten so I've never had that illusion that there's ever it is clogs to clogs or if you're lucky you can resuscitate the situation for another generation or two. But after that, there's no protection. And, and, and in fact, there's the very opposite. There's damage caused by wealth because there's that sense of entitlement I referred to earlier can develop. Um, and if it doesn't in your children, it'll d develop in the ones who, who are mollycoddled after that. Yeah. So as a grandparent, are you a tough, tough love? Is that no, the, no, uh... I'm keeping away. <laughs> I'm keeping well away. So, so I'd be interested, um, you know, it's now probably almost coming up for two years since you, you sort of stepped away from, from Platinum as a business. Maybe it'd be interesting for the, for the listeners just to talk about, you know, what you're doing now and uh, what you enjoy about that. Well, what I've got to do is, is have some people who can advise the girls when I'm gone. So what I'm trying to do is develop a small team um, who, who are competent fund managers. So what I've been doing for the last year is spending two hours a day boring the pants off these young guys. Yeah. Um, we haven't found any young ladies, unfortunately, because most of them don't seem to you know, have the same interests in, in funds management that we come across. But anyway, um, and my, my two uh, girls are not interested in managing money. Um, so just lecturing them every day and interacting with them, trying to un make them see that they need to develop certain skills and what have you. And, and that's, that's proving quite successful. We've made some nice mistakes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but, um, but overall, we're, we're doing okay. Learning opportunities, they're called. Very, well, exactly. Well, if you go back to, to 1994 and setting up Platinum and you had Andrew, Jim and Toby, who were all young, young guys who sort of started the journey with you, are, are there parallels? To what you're doing today with this with sort of group of guys and and does that you know a generation later do you approach it i guess in a similar way or a different way it is different because um you know after 50 years one has sort of discarded a whole lot of things that you might have um done before and you're just you're much more um focused so there's this wonderful set of um, drawings by Picasso where he starts with this very elaborate bull and he then shows the the um, progression of removing all the detail. You, he, he ends up with sort of 12 lines yes. to illustrate the essence of what he's trying to get to. And so that's the first thing I've framed in the office. Right. So when they're jabbering, yeah. I I look at them and I point to the picture and I said, bottom right-hand corner. Yeah, that's all I want. <laughs> that's all we want. Yeah. So cut cut back. Yeah. And um, and why 
it's difficult is because you're still learning and you think all this other paraphernalia is important. But actually, as time goes on, you realize you can cut all, and and that's what guru artists do all the time. Just removing elaboration, simplicity is the key. I mean, obviously having worked alongside a number of analysts over the years, I think analysts have a tendency to show you their analysis rather than show you the conclusions perhaps? Would that be fair? What is ideal is if they say, these are the reasons I think the market has got the story wrong and then elaborate backwards from there. So firstly start with the, what they have deduced is causing the mispricing in a company and then elaborate on those. Don't laboriously take everyone through all the, that, that, you know, that sort of vortex yeah. of confusion yeah. because you lose your, your, your listener, you lose your audience. Yes. And if you, if you don't cut through, it just becomes a tedium. So start with the answer. Yeah. But, but be prepared to understand that you're trying to persuade yes. and you have no right to stick to that view, you have done a lot of work, but you will find there's always another point of view around some of the interpretation. There has to be. And that's one of the problems with these these business school courses where they do all these these programs, but it's always written by someone after the event. So they won't have picked up on all the confusion in these business case studies. At the time. Yeah, at the time. Yeah. So I've often wondered, you know, when you're taking these um, viewpoints, do you feel you could be able to argue both sides of the case? You know, it's the... Well, it's become much better now because what you have are these services, which some of the listeners should really try and think about, is um, you've got the, firstly, the companies post their quarterlies um, on their websites. So you can hear what management um, are talking about and you can also hear, hear the change in tone over three or four years. And you can see when they're starting to become uh, obsessed with self-love and you can see a whole lot of things. Um, But the second thing that's really valuable are these uh, services where uh, there's an interviewer takes, uh, picks someone who's been with a company or a competitor and they then talk about the culture of an organization and what have you. So by listening to a few of those calls, you can quite quickly triangulate and work out the sort of business that you're looking at. And you can actually do what I've never been able to do before, is really get a, a, an insider's track on what that business really was about. Because you think the description they give is reality, it's not. It's, it's a whole lot of nuances. And when I started as a young analyst, and it, it, it was very powerful, tool, I'd say to someone, and it was so naive, it was actually disarming of them. I'd say, so what is the trick to this business? And because I was young, they take sympathy on me. And so they would then divulge what they thought was the essence of their business quite quickly. But as you've got, you know, um, investor relations and all these new laws about insider information and so on, all that sort of frankness is gone. Yes. So these are new sources of, 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 call it truth or opinion, they're quite valuable. So so as the companies have become more guarded, you have to take one step away. Yes. And next what they'll do is they'll put 
muzzles on people who've been hired and say, you cannot talk about the company. This is a forever, <laughs> forever yeah. or for four years or something. So you'll lose. It's a bit like the signal lost by uh, Facebook with, with the uh, privacy claims imposed by Apple. So they've lost signal, and, and we might lose signal if they if they muzzle those sources. So over that journey, it's interesting because you talk about being naive, if you like, to start with and mm. opening people up. When, when we used to go and see companies, in which is probably now almost 15 to 20 years ago, the trick that I thought you employed by then was a, was a different one, which was showing a very sort of deep piece of knowledge and almost the management would open up because they thought, geez, this guy's done a lot of work and maybe you'd picked out one thing. But again, you managed to unlock. The- well, you're, you're very uh, generous, but there that was, that was a trick yeah. where you, you would give the impression that you knew quite a lot in order to break down these, these barriers. So uh, yes, I can't deny some trickery. It worked. <laughs> so I guess just, uh, just to wrap up, you know, we sort of, uh, we started off with this idea of, um, you know, drive and, and perseverance. And um, I think what you've touched on really is there's no shortcuts in this game. Um, how would you, I guess, sum up what people who are interested in investing and, you know, thinking about, you know, pursuing it as a, as a hobby or more, um, you know, if you could give them one or two sort of pieces of advice to take away, what do you, what do you think? People should focus on. I think the most important thing is is question the. You've got to be questioning. Why is the crowd so convinced this is right? And with all these great bull markets, there's always a kernel of truth that is then elaborated upon and built upon. But but a massive sandcastle often. So that's the first thing. Be, be aware of fashion. Be comfortable in yourself to challenge that. And then just the very simple thing of practice. So just just trying things. And and if you're a, uh, an amateur investor, I've always proposed that you keep a um, just a just a spreadsheet of your ideas. You don't have to use real money, but but you need to write down on that spreadsheet. I like this idea because of this, this, and this. And the thing I've learned that most uh, amateur investors do not fully understand is they have to. In their assessment of that business, they have to have a terminal valuation, which sounds rather complicated, but they've got to have a figure in their mind of what this business is really worth. Because the day-to-day fluctuations, the market will throw you out and you'll keep saying, well, you know, I've I've made 10% today, I've lost it 5%, I've lost 5% tomorrow. But if you say, this business, say a Netflix, Which is trading now at I don't know three seventy five. What are its problems? What are its uh, are its uh, opportunities? And I can point to both yes. and say, well, I think it's got more challenges than opportunities right now. But at some stage in the future, this could be worth a great deal because it'll be one of three streaming services with worldwide content with scale that is uh, two to three times that of its competitors. Yeah. But you won't find me buying that stock today. So it's the sort of thing of have a very clear idea of where this business can go, watch it, don't be too impatient, and then when it reaches a price that you think is giving you enough uh, room for error, then dive in. So almost to start with, you want to assess yourself on your ability to 
analyze the business and if you can't detach analyze, yourself from if you, the well, Absolutely. Yeah. If, you, if you do not analyze the business and what you think it's worth, yes. if you're not entrepreneurial in that approach, I don't think you're going to be a great investor. I think that's a great place to, to wrap it up. Hopefully, um, some of the listeners will, uh, will flourish in, in times ahead. Thank you very much, Care, for joining us today. Thanks, Doug. Thanks for listening to the Investing for Life podcast. If you like what you hear, please remember to subscribe and share with your friends. For show notes from today's conversation, head to platinum.com.au.